Do you feel that in a time when we are more connected than ever, we are drifting away from real human connection, especially to ourselves? I do. Hi, I'm Leticia Latino, and I want to invite you to join me and my very inspiring guests in exploring ways to reconnect to your essence, to your definite purpose, to what makes you tick. Are you ready? Well, hello there. Welcome to a new episode of Back to Basics, Reconnecting to the Essence of You. My guest today is Jamie Mittelman. She's the founder of Flame Bearers, an award-winning podcast and the world's first storytelling platform, specifically for women Olympians and Paralympians. Her background is in media, having managed a 30 million media portfolio on behalf of the conglomerate of Yahoo, the Huffington Post, AOL, and Verizon. You get the gist. She is a media guru. Hello, Jamie, and welcome to Back to Basics. Hi, Leticia. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited about, you know, listening to learning about your journey and how you, you know, obviously you are doing something very good with all those skills and talents and, and knowledge <laughs> that, that, that you have gathered in your journey. So I'm definitely interested also to learn if young Jamie dreamt about doing any of that or what were <laughs> young, younger Jamie's dreams. Tell us a little bit about your childhood and, and how those early years shaped up for you. Sure. I love that question because the answer is no. I never thought I would be doing this. Um, I dreamt of becoming a professional soccer player. That was my oh. dream. I oh, wanted wow. to be a professional soccer player. I was all in on the sports world and, and the playing of sports, not being on the media side. I grew up in small town in Massachusetts, literally 3,000 people, one stoplight. And sports <laughs> were a big way that I... Uh, connected with people, with my family. My dad was my soccer coach. I would mm. go running with my mom. It was how I decompressed at the end of the day. It was how I processed information. And it was how I, I made connections with people. So for me at a young age, sports were a very influential and huge part of my life. Um, I, I played three sports in high school. I played soccer in college. Um, oh, wow. And and now I'm, I mentioned I'm training for my, my second marathon will be very slow, but the goal is just to finish. So oh wow, um, that's summary, admirable. Summary is sports played a huge part of my life my life growing up, but um it wasn't until after college where I was introduced to the power of media. Um my first job after college, I, I moved to Bangladesh and I worked at a women's university. Oh wow. Yeah, I just I went for it. I thought I wanted to be a teacher once I realized I was not going to be playing soccer professionally. And so that's when you did, did study education. Um, I was actually an international affairs major. OK, and so I went to a liberal arts college. I went to Middlebury College in Vermont. Again, I love the woods and I, I kind of fell in love with working with um, people internationally because it provided me with very different insights, people from different backgrounds. Having grown up in a very small town, I was curious about people who were different than myself. I mm. wanted to understand what their lives were like and what made them tick. So I think when I had the chance to to go and live abroad, I chose the place that, at least on paper, was as far away and as different as possible. Um, I love that. And I got up and I and I moved to Chittagong, Bangladesh, which is 
essentially, if, if you've heard about it, um, it's where they take the big oil tankers and, and pretty much children take them apart there. Um, mm. it, it, there's no tourism there. I was the only white person on the plane. I was also the only woman on the plane. So people mm. looked at me like I had five heads when when I landed <laughs> there. Was that scary? Like, well, I'm curious about your your feelings as you were going, because obviously there's excitement that the idea, I, I can right. feel it. But once you get there, I've done things in my life that sounded so good. And then the moment I got there, even coming to do my master's in the U.S., right. and I saw how different my classroom was when I first joined. And I'm like, why on earth did I have to go do this? I mean, why did that ever come across your mind? Honestly, for the first couple months, no. The only the only time when it did come across my mind, I ended up getting pretty sick. I got dengue and typhoid. And I had this Oof. moment where I was lying in bed and I was like, this was all a choice. You didn't <laughs> have to do this. Why are you here? I think when I landed, when I, you know, realized what the kind of the rules of the community were, basically, you know, that that there's only certain types of attire I should wear, that I should go out at certain hours, things like that from a safety perspective. I actually saw it as really exciting. It definitely was very different, but I think that that's what I was looking for. I think I wanted something that really challenged me. I, I have a habit for better or worse of running towards the thing that that kind of scare me because they mm -hmm. pushed me. Mm -hmm. And I, um, I think this was a perfect example of, of literally throwing myself into an environment that was as foreign to me as possible because it would push me. I love that. I, I think that's fantastic. And so in, all in all, you were there for how long? So I was only there for half a year because I ended up getting so sick. I, the plan was supposed to be there for a year or two. But essentially what happened was when I got sick, I ended up taking on marketing and communications work for this university. And I fell in love with the ability to reach people outside of the 15 students in my classroom. Mm. What I loved about teaching was the ability to influence how people think. But I found that also in marketing and communications. And yes, you're you're not in a classroom, you don't get to see the students, but you have the potential to reach hundreds, thousands, millions of people. And I, that to me was what was really appealing. Mm. Uh, so after that, I said, hey, this is what I want to do. I want to do marketing and communications, but World Wildlife Fund, because if you look at the brands that have the biggest um, brand recognition worldwide in the charitable space, they are the Red Cross and WWF. And mm -hmm. I said, I'm not particularly passionate about pandas, but I want to go there and I want to learn from the best at this. They know mm -hmm. what they're doing um, and had a terrific experience there. But I think I found that the nonprofit world was fraught with some challenges, not sustainable budgets, always having to uh, be applying for more grant money, things like that. And I said, I want to go to the for-profit space and work with charitable causes. So that's mm. when I went into that um, media role, managing our, our CSR, so corporate social responsibility um, and cause marketing program. Mm. And I was there, great. I was there for about almost four and a half years, I believe. And then I went to business school. I got my MBA. And then I, I realized I, I wanted another master's. <laughs> I guess I, I got a master's in public policy. And it was during my time in that second program that I started my work with Flame Bears, which is the storytelling platform for women Olympians and Paralympians. 
Mm, that's so great. I love about your journey that it's almost like you stayed connected to what makes you tick, which you use the term just now. Say, oh, she she said it and I love it. And and this has happened, you know, with a few guests that okay. that they not that many. I that's why I love the stories, you know, because finding what makes you tick later in life or earlier in life, but few have kind of have that continuity in terms mm. of, you know, that you know you love sports and now you're running a marathon. So you you right. have had a consistency and then you knew very early on that you wanted to make the world a better place, it sounds like. And so to make those decisions like almost reverse rather than go to a job because that's what was offered. And I went to a new, I always say people go through new job search and they just go with what's available rather yeah. than wait, what do I enjoy doing? Right. What companies can I research that do this? And then let me infiltrate myself into that environment, which sounds exactly what you did. Sure. Well, well, thank you. I, I do think I, I was very privileged in my ability to do so. I think that that is important to recognize that I had I had some choices. But yes, I, I have always known what what I get excited about. And I think I, I wanted to, I think the challenge for me has been more so figuring out how I want to bring that to life. So I know mm-hmm. that I'm passionate about working with women and girls and sports. And I think the challenge for me has always been, okay, what's the medium? How do I go about doing that? Does that mean I'm going to be a coach? Does that mean I'm going to be in media? Does that mean I'm going to be A, B, or C that works with women and girls in sports? Because there's so many ways that you can do that. So I think throughout my career, I've been trying different things that work with those those common factors and seeing what I'm good at, what sticks, things like that. Mm, I see you're working at the United Nations or something like that, like, (laughs) uh, you know, and uh, because the other thing is like you not only recognize what makes you tick, but then you go uh, and, and go study again and take the master's in public policy. So now you're putting goodies behind the intention that really are a powerful combo. So I, I love that. So you're in this master and you're now doing, you know, getting more involved. And then you have this idea of creating a podcast. Mm-hmm. And, and and of course, the you know, the purpose and mission is beautiful because definitely, you know, uh, embracing women and, and creating this platform to tell the story. How did you connect those dots to, <laughs> to bring flame bearers to life? Totally. Um, it's my father used to say that a career is is made in hindsight when you connect the dots and it's mm-hmm. you have random disparate dots and you you can kind of look back and connect them and tell a story. And I, I yes. think that is kind of what happened, if I'm gonna to be totally honest, with Flame Bears. Um, so I was in between my years, I was getting a master's in public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. I had been pitching a role to the International Olympic Committee. They do a ton of incredible work around elevating diverse voices, including women. And I said, you do an incredible job of that. Now, let me help tell the world all the awesome stuff you do. You have an incredible mm-hmm. report, but no one's going to go to your website and and read the fine print on on this report, which is kind of ugly, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And it's not it's not compelling. No one's going to know about the awesome stuff you're doing. So I'd been in conversations trying to pitch this role, and then COVID happened. And essentially, Mm -hmm. the Olympics and Paralympics were postponed. No one knew what was going to happen. The IOC was definitely not hiring. And I said, you know what? Okay, fine. I'm going to do this on my own. Uh, This is terrifying. I'm at a great institution that will provide me with funding. 
I'm going to do this on my own. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, I basically, through a lot of trial and error, through speaking with a lot of people, I built a team. I, I worked with advisors at graduate school who had been in the media world, who had been in sports. And I talked to anyone who had ever had a podcast before. And I basically learned, how do you do it? And then I just jumped right in. Um, mm. And it was absolutely terrifying. But I've been doing it for three years now. And we are expanding beyond podcasts. So we're really now have become the preeminent storytelling platform for women Olympians and Paralympians. So we tell their stories via podcasts. We also tell their stories via live events, via short form video. We try to tell their stories across as many channels as possible. I love that. What a mission. And, I, and you know, it's a, and it's very timely. I think you're aligning with what the world that like that transformation that these stories, as you said, need to get out. They need to get out and not that many people are looking into, you know, and, and, and I've said in the book, I'm in telecommunications. And one of my biggest frustrations is that the people that make keep us connected, the tower climbers, nobody talks about that. And if no. it wasn't for them, we wouldn't have cell phones. So it's there are so many unsung heroes out there in all the industries that if everybody that has any sort of knowledge involvement or anything like that, that helps, you know, bring awareness into the amazing work they do, it would definitely be a better world. Totally. It's it's crazy. Um, less than 4% of sports media coverage in the United States goes to women athletes. So that's that's about 96% of sports media coverage goes to male athletes. And that number is even lower globally. And then if you're an athlete with a disability, so all the Paralympians, those are phys physically disabled athletes, you're not going to get any coverage, let alone coverage that doesn't paint you with the pity brush. And then mm. if you're from the global South, if you are of a, a different religion than is the norm, if you are bisexual or lesbian, Basically, anything that falls outside the, the quote unquote standard, you're not going to really get coverage, let alone coverage that is empowering to you. So we're, we're trying to change that. Our, our upcoming episode is with Masuma Alizada of Afghanistan. She was the first woman from Afghanistan to ever compete in the Olympics in cycling. And, you know, people are not telling those stories and they need to be told. And this, the focus on grit and resilience and hope. I think are are so relatable to everyone. Mm, I totally agree. Totally agree. So in thinking, I mean, as I hear you speak and also, you, you know, you're pushing a, a big cause, which is, you know, women in sports. And sure. it's undeniable that in all the conversations, I mean, I'm Italian and, and so the soccer and you see also what happens in, in the U.S. and you inevitably to you get to that conversation with some guy that will tell totally. you that women don't deserve equal pay because like they justify because of the following and how much money, you know, what's your whole take on that justification is like, well, the, the, the men's sport drive way more revenue for, you know, the ecosystem, so to speak. And that's why even if the women is doing exactly the same thing, putting exactly right. the same effort gets paid less. Sure. Um, I actually, the first episode I did was with Becky Sauerbrunn, who is the captain of the U.S. women's national soccer team. She is also the president of the Players Association and was one of the main drivers of the pay equity lawsuit. So yes. the, the women's team uh, pushing for pay equity in the United States. 
I would take a step back and, and think about a couple different things. Are we truly compensating people for the demand or are we compensate? What are we compensating them for? Mm-hmm. And I think that that is important. I think when you look at the growth of women's soccer, it takes decades to build a fan base. You look at how how fast the fans for women's soccer have have come around. They are faster than the, the fan growth for MLB, for the NHL, for anything in the history of men's sports. People are jumping on the sports bandwagon for women faster than they have historically for other previous leagues. If you think about, I'm a Boston Red Sox fan, and I'm a Boston Red Sox fan because my parents took me to Red Sox games. It mm-hmm. just takes time because there's a generational component to building support around women's sports. So as parents take their kids to women's sports teams, their kids are going to start saying, yes, I am a fan of the Seattle Storm or I'm a fan of Megan Rapino because they grew up seeing them. So it just takes time. I would also say that I think that argument is super outdated. I don't think that that holds water when you look at the number of followers that these athletes have, when you see the demand that they are creating for the products that they endorse. I don't think that that holds water when people say, um, look, the revenue generating because of the the history of of both teams and both both leagues. Mm, I love that. And I'm glad I I always when I have an expert on a subject, you know, I love it because then they give everybody listening like ammunition, like knowledge. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, the point you made is really, really strong in terms of what are we, I could just see myself in an argument and say, well, why are we compensating for it? Right? <laughs> and, then, exactly. <laughs> and then people will be like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I just love that you shared that with us. And, and then definitely we need more of that. And then of course, on the effort of, you know, accessibility more than disability, like I'm a big proponent of, we need to make you know, everything we do accessible for any human being. And I know it's more challenging than others, you know, because of course, even in sports, if, you know, if you have a disability or a handicap, you know, like you you cannot just opt for the same things. But tell us a little bit more about that, the world of sports and, and accessibility and disabilities. Sure. Um, and I And I would be completely, to be completely transparent, I think I am still very much learning about this space. I'm an able-bodied woman, but I think it's really important for people who are able-bodied to support people within the disabled community and to support people, athletes within the Paralympic movement. The parallel I like to create is within the United States, there was Black Lives Matter, BLM. And as a white woman, there was a lot, I saw a lot of my friends, a lot of my family posting about the responsibilities, the opportunities for white people to get involved and be allies. And I think the same parallel is true. The, obviously, the conditions are very different, but being a able-bodied person gives you the ability to kind of go in and out of, of the world of someone with disabilities. And I think you have an opportunity and a responsibility to be an ally for them. So mm-hmm. when you do look at the world of of disabilities, athletes basically are lacking fundamental financial support. I just worked with Rita Simwe of Uganda. She is the number one para badminton player in all of Africa. She is fundraising for herself. She does not have governmental support. She does not have the funding of a governing body. These athletes 
basically are on their own. And I think that's true of elite athletes in most countries. And I think it's really challenging because at the same time, they're forced to work other jobs. And there's also discrimination in the workplace against people with disabilities. So if they're lucky to even get a job, then they can continue working on their sport. Rita was telling me how she just got hired for her first job ever. Um, and she is in her 30s. Um, it's because mm. people, she has one arm. People don't want to hire someone with, with one arm because they see them as a liability. So there's there's the the need to fundraise. There's the need for them to have secondary jobs and also the discrimination they face in getting hired because people don't usually frequently don't like to hire someone with a physical disability. And then there's also just the lack of, of coverage and support for, for that community in general. Um, I worked with an athlete from Russia who, and this was before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and she was telling me that growing up, she was basically hid, that people did not want to see her on the streets. She's in a wheelchair and that she was in, for all intents and purposes, invisible. And I think the first step that we can take is making the invisible visible, is making sure that these people with disabilities are seen, are heard, are counted, and that their voices are listened to just as much as anyone else's. Mm, what a great purpose, making the invisible visible. That very well be your episode's title. <laughs> I always make notes about what resonates, and that that is very powerful. You know, like you, I'm actually part of the board of the director of advisors rather of the South Beach Jazz Festival. And it's our part of our mission is, you know, uh, helping musicians with disabilities and make it more accessible. Sure. And just the things that you just by talking with people, you know, that they just, you know, COVID, for instance, they were sharing how COVID had actually made a lot of things better for a lot of people because now they could grocery shop from home. Yeah. And it, it makes total sense. But, you know, until somebody with that issue doesn't tell you, because, uh, you know, for a lot of disabled people, it's like moving to place to place, obviously, is the biggest challenge. And totally. yeah, I mean, I could talk about that, but in the sense that you're saying making the invisible visible, it's like once you get familiar and you get involved, never again, you cannot see what you have seen. Exactly. And once you know the problem <laughs> is there then you cannot ignore it. And I think that's what activates us. And I think that's the importance of podcasts like yours, because once you hear these stories firsthand and what they, the challenges they have and the inspiration they bring, because most of people with the biggest challenges are more optimistic than the privileged people that have everything figured out. Exactly, exactly. To your point, I and this is not weighing in um, with a perspective of my own, but this was an experience that I had not seen before. I was having a conversation with a person with disabilities and he said, I love the movement for transgender bathrooms is, is incredible. I love it. However, the way we are going about it, people are taking handicap stalls and turning them into gender neutral bathrooms mm. and I no longer have a bathroom to go to. That is so, crazy. So wow. to be clear, I'm not weighing in on that debate, but his experience was, you know, a lot of people think about the bathroom argument as, yay, this is fantastic. Equal access for more people. This person said, I no longer can go to the bathroom because what used to be the handicap stall is, is now longer open for people with disabilities because it's a transgender open to people of all genders. But in doing so, I'm excluded. So it's interesting when we think that we are being open, 
the consequences for people who are, you know, we're, we're looking at two different groups of populations of people who've been oppressed and hurt and pushed down before. But I think we haven't quite figured out the answer. Right. I totally agree. And I, my biggest fear is that in trying to be inclusive, we become discriminatory. That's my fear, that you try to include so many that now you start really excluding others. Like, and this I say, I say, you know, I'm a, I'm a women-owned business and I, yeah, people think you're a feminist. I say, no, I've said it many times. I'm an equalitarian. I fight for equal opportunity. Uh-huh. It shouldn't matter what your gender is. You should have equal opportunity. And yep. because I know that when I say, you know, women-owned, 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 I'm excluding the men and the yep. men are part of my everyday life and I enjoy working with men. So why would I exclude myself from that when you just take such a polarizing view on the, on the subject? And so everything you are saying too, uh, in wanting to be more inclusive with inclusive with a segment, we are forgetting a segment that needs it even more that the reason why we try to make things accessible is because, you know, not everybody has the privilege of being born with, you know, with all the, you know, senses and abilities. So it's incredible. So there's a lot of work to be done, I'm sure. So Jamie, I mean, besides everything that you told us that is exciting, I always give my guests an opportunity to share anything else that we haven't discussed that is exciting you, that any projects, anything else that you want to share with the audience? Sure. So we are in the process of, hopefully we are, we're fingers and toes crossed on a video production in the lead up to the Women's World Cup. So should know within the next couple of weeks, but essentially that would be a deep dive into some of the women who are trying to make the World Cup team in the lead up to this summer's World Cup. So we're very excited about that. Another opportunity to bring these stories to light, but in, in a different medium. So not podcasting, but video. I uh, love it. So I love it. Very excited about that. We would love to hear from anyone who is passionate about sport and identifies as a woman. So we are a growing community. We do a community spotlight series on social media once every week where we spotlight a woman who is passionate about sport. Identify or or sport can mean whatever you want. Last week's um, episode was on a woman who's really passionate about yoga. Yoga is obviously not an Olympic or Paralympic sport, but for her, that's what she's committed to. So. If you would like to be spotlighted, please follow us on social media. And we have a a request form, an interest form in our LinkedIn bio. So basically, we're looking to grow our community. We would love for anyone and all to be a part of it. Awesome. And definitely all the info will be on the show notes. And so my last question of my podcast is about what makes people tick. And you share so much about what makes you tick and it just irradiates in every word you say. Besides that, on the on the, I always try to ask you this: when you have a bad day, like I just had two bad days, where and normally don't have bad days, and I had to go to that resource in place. Where do yep. you go when, when you need to just reconnect to to yourself? I have it's it sounds so silly. I have like five places that I go to, and depending on why the day was bad or how it was bad, I kind of look at this menu of five things and I say, okay, this is what I want. So to start with the silliest, I get a pint of ice cream and I just eat the whole pint. Um, (laughs) Sometimes, honestly, food just makes me happy and ice cream does the trick. And Uh, you're an athlete, so you can do it. (laughs) 
I, I don't know if I can. You or can, can get away I with it. it. <laughs> I do it. This is this is another silly one. I take baths. This is something I got into during COVID. It's a means to relax me. It's a means to kind of reset and wash away the day. Some of the more, I'd say, not serious ones, but I'd say exercise is a huge way for me to reset mentally. Um, it's kind of a way that I am able to walk away from whatever it is that upset me. Um, I would also say, and within that, I would say yoga and meditation is a, is a w- main way that I reground myself and focus on my why. Sometimes I also go to, I focus really on the people who we've supported. So this is the fourth way. So the fourth way is focusing on basically the the people who I've served, um, who I've helped and that allows me to put things in perspective. So I'm able to say, yes, I messed up on this today or this didn't go my way. But at the end of the day, this person said I made their day better or I I helped them in this way. So I'm able to kind of contextualize the annoyance or the frustration or whatever feeling I'm feeling in the moment with my big picture why of why I'm doing what I'm doing. And I think that that, that is really helpful for me. And then the fifth way is um, surrounding myself with loved ones. So mm. being with friends, with family who uplift me and who can kind of pick me up. I think it's a it's a huge benefit and I need to be a part of a team that always has my back. I have their back and I think there, you know, everyone has up days and down days and I see it as an opportunity and responsibility to be there for my best friends and my family when when they need a little help and, and they're there for me too. Mm, I love that. And I love the menu because I think you're right. I think, and and, I, and people have said, well, I, I do several things, but I love how you put it, like depending how I felt and what the deal is, there's uh, degrees of, of reconnection kind of, right. <laughs> do you need a power, a battery bank or, you, you know, just with a little USB charger, like you, you're going to get the juice you need. So I love that. Exactly. Sometimes you're like, I need to surround myself with other people. And then you're like, nope, time out. I need that ice cream. I'm done. Yes. For <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, Jamie, this has been a great conversation. You're really a true inspiration. Somebody that's out there putting a lot of time and effort and commitment in making the world a better place and bringing these stories that, as you say, need to be listened to, need to be admired, need to be cherished and need to be told. So I thank you, you know, and definitely, um, you know, you have a new subscriber to your podcast and, and a new fan. So thank you for that. Thank you for having me, Leticia. Thank you. Bye-bye, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. And until the next episode of Back to Basics. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Back to Basics. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook. If you haven't yet, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming platforms. This is the best gift you can give us. Join me next week for another Back to Basics conversation. And if you want to find out about other exciting things I'm working on, visit LeticiaLatino.com. Thank you, and until the next time.